idea. Hello? What is the... What do you want what me to say? What is going on here? Like, oh, it's why? just, um... Chameleon. Chameleon. Okay. You're listening to Chameleon. A production of Campside Media. Oh. <laughs> When we left off last week, Ben Decker, our digital forensics expert, was chasing what felt like our only decent lead. He was looking into this travel agency slash logistics company in Jakarta called Akshaya. We had given him access to the pile of documents we had from victims, like itineraries and hotel bills and bank receipts. And Ben noticed that some of these things had that name Akshaya stamped or referenced on them. But while this seemed fishy... Ben couldn't locate any information about the only names he could find connected to the firm. The digital trail just sort of went cold. And Ben had a lot of other work, plus his COVID illness, to deal with. So we pursued another path. We'd heard from Heather Pitchford, the makeup artist in London, that there was this one victim, a security guard and retired mercenary, who was extremely pissed. Heather got a call from the security guard's wife after she began growing suspicious. She was wary of her husband's odd movie job in Jakarta. And she desperately wanted me to corroborate this photo so that she could confirm to him that it definitely was a scam and that he shouldn't go. And so I kind of helped in that way, but I was felt for her deeply because he was shame. He really was keen to go back and had already spent quite a lot of money. This seemed like a guy we should talk to. Did he have interest in speaking with journalists? Uh, nope. He still had a lot of shame and embarrassment from the scam and wanted to put it behind him. But Heather talked to him, shared her experience. Helping us could help stop the scammer. This struck a chord. He would talk, but he didn't want us to use his real name. So we'll call him Tony. Vanessa and I got on the phone with him. Let's go ahead and start. Okay, we're good. All right. Tony's semi-retired now. He lives in Southern Europe. He doesn't want to say exactly where, but it's on the Mediterranean coast which is why you might hear birds chirping in the background. And he's got a dog you might hear, too. So could you describe yourself in vague terms? I'm a former Special Forces soldier and private security contractor. I've had many years in these industries, up to 30 now. And then you've also done consulting for, for film and TV, right? Yes, I have. I, um, my first sort of soiree into the movie industry was as a stuntman which was very similar to the military. You get dressed up, you, you run around, you throw yourself on the ground a few times, and then you get up and have a beer. So a few years back, Tony wasn't that surprised when he got a call from a producer out of the blue to do the same sort of work, consult on setting up security for a film. And what was the movie? The movie was called what American Revenge. American Revenge. It was a Chinese production, and the producer, a woman, wanted his help. She hoped he could send a security team to Jakarta, actually. So I did manage to get four other people that I have worked with in the past interested in, uh, they went over as well after I had already been over. Oh, so you didn't go as a group? No, no, we went over as individuals. How many total people? Uh, including myself, five. This is the main reason Tony agreed to talk to us. He drafted some old war buddies of his to make the trip. I honestly felt like uh, my guts had been torn out, you know? More than myself, though, was... I got my guys involved, and when I had to break it to them that it was a scam, I mean, being ex-military, all they did was laugh and give me shit. The money didn't mean anything to them. They said, oh, fuck, don't worry about it, you know. But I, I felt like I had completely let them down, and um, it, was, it was it's certainly one of the worst things that's happened to me. W weren't you in Fallujah? I was, yeah. I was in Iraq so for seven years. 
So the, the, the need for revenge here is even more so than things that you saw in combat? I don't mind combat. You've got a gun and they've got a gun. They're trying to kill you, you're trying to kill them. That's fine. I mean, that's just the way it is. But this is completely different. While Tony had seemed really hesitant to talk to us, it almost felt as if he'd been waiting for a call. He said that he'd saved everything from the trip. You know, I, I had a feeling that this was going to rear its ugly head, which for some reason why I, I've never really deleted the file. Vanessa had one last question for him. What do you think would be fair? Like, what is justice in this situation? A really bad, shitty Indonesian prison where they spend a lot of time, many, many years, living in a basic hell. Would I want to see this person die? Sure, but that would only have to be at my hands. But physically hurt, definitely. Tortured and gone through the same anxiety and distress that everyone else, myself included, has gone through. For sure. For sure. This is Chameleon, the story of the Hollywood Con Queen. I'm Josh Dean. Chapter 8, Hunting the Hunter. Tony wasn't joking. He wanted retribution, like to go and seek it with his own hands. But he knew that physical violence wasn't really the kind of plan we, as journalists, could get on board with. Fortunately, he had some other ideas, things we could do while Ben was busy chasing down leads, and while we waited for Nicole or the FBI to make a move. Tony told us that he had some old contacts in Jakarta. I've got a very good friend over there, a very good colleague of mine. He speaks very good English. Um, he knows people. Because he's been over there for so long, so he's... If he's connected, I would even love you know, someone who could do a little quiet poking around just to see if, like, we could get some identities on some of the other people or, or find out. Um, I can contact him, and he can certainly help arrange for what you would need, in fact, if you wanted to go over there. And um, I trust him 100%. Tony contacted his friend, who was happy to help. There was just one thing. I needed to send him some money by international wire to hire the guy as a kind of private investigator. I just figured before I send $5,000 around the world, I just wanted to like, just make sure you're, you're, you have total faith in this guy, right? Dude, have I ever been scammed? <laughs> <laughs> the one reason I called you is like, when you sent me the bank information this morning, I was like, is real? Tony asked his friend to start with the driver in Jakarta, the one we knew had picked up most, if not all, the victims over the years. We had that driver's photo from several of those victims, as well as pictures of his license plate and his driver's license. There were some other leads to share with Tony's friend, too. I've got the address of the hotel he was using, at least back in 2015. I wonder if it's the one where you stayed. Let me, let me tell you the name of it. It is the um, Santika Kalapa Gadding. Does that sound familiar? Well, I'm glad you don't speak my fucking native language. <laughs> um, my Indonesian is a little rusty, man. Forgive me. There were a lot of aspects of this thing that had the hallmarks of a modern internet scam. The con artist had made himself impossible to find. He was hiding behind covert IP addresses somewhere. And once he had gotten what he wanted from you, he'd never call again. But Tony was a flesh and blood guy. And we trusted him. That's what we needed, human beings on the ground who are willing to help us. 
It's what journalists call flooding the zone, and it means chasing down anyone and everyone who could possibly help us solve this mystery. So while we were waiting for Tony's private investigator friend to come through, we broadened our search. For starters, we needed some stringers in Jakarta, stand-in freelancers who could knock on doors and talk to cops and lawyers. We found one journalist who used to work at the BBC and another who wrote for Vice. We set them loose, hoping for the best. We were also collecting as many little bits of information as we could from the victims about who this guy could possibly be. Like, when we talked to Tony, we asked him a question. What do you imagine he looks like? If he's in the UK, he's a skinny, white, blonde-haired fuck who wears a tracksuit. That was a funny picture. Some pasty dude with frosted tips from, like, Liverpool. But the thing is, we heard he wasn't an English guy. That he was actually Indonesian, or of Indian descent and Indonesian. And we learned one other surprising thing about our secretive con artist as well. He was an aspiring influencer on Instagram. That was Carly Rudd. It's her Instagram warning to other victims that we played for you a couple times. And what she's saying is crazy because an influencer is somebody who's out there with his own face and you would think also name. Influencers make money from being in public, going to fancy hotels, taking selfies or whatever. It's kind of the opposite of what the con queen is all about, right? He's supposed to be hiding in shadows. You'd think this might help us, but when you start to look around, there are a lot of Indonesian influencers on Instagram. So we asked a woman who is a student of mine at NYU's graduate journalism school to join the team and help sift through it all. Her name's Callie Hitchcock. Callie's mission was to help us understand what the Indonesian influencer scene was like and, hopefully, find a person among those influencers who might know who the con queen is. Josh and I got on the phone with Callie. So are most of the influencers, are they, like, young guys? Like, maybe we can interview them, and maybe they'll know something. Unless they don't speak English. In which case, we may need somebody. <laughs> right. So the Indonesian influencers don't have videos in English, but they have videos that I can recognize from YouTube culture in general. So it's the same sort of thing, like, here's where I'm staying at my new place. <laughs> They might be promoting their recent event or podcast drop or selling products. Real me smartphone. And maybe having giveaways. The queer Instagrammers like to play with gender. This is a guy lip syncing to a rant by Tyra Banks on America's Next Top Model. I was rooting for you. We were all rooting for you. How dare you? A theme or a trait we we know about the scammers is this playing with gender fluidity and and you know we wonder if he might be gay or trans himself. Is that a is that a theme? Are there a lot of the influencers that are like sort of gender fluid or, or openly LGBT? The queer Instagram influencers actually looked pretty similar to queer Instagrammers in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So lots of really cool makeup and nights out with friends, that kind of thing. And there's a handful that I found that seem to have a very open lifestyle, but I think Indonesia can be pretty homophobic, so they appear to keep their identity secret for the most part and don't use their real names. Yeah, and that's that's both interesting and, and probably telling because I think, you know, if, if our guys, you know, grew up gay there, there's a very good chance he's in the closet. If, if he's transgender, he very well is not openly that. And also, it's pretty unlikely that his persona, whatever it is, is like his his name and his face, you know. I suspect when we find him eventually, it's going to be under a different name and maybe not even using his pictures. I mean, who knows? Because 
we don't exactly have a lot of clues at the moment. Unfortunately, we couldn't really figure out which influencer he was. And none of the influencers Callie contacted had even heard of the scam. So that was a dead end. And we were still waiting on leads from Tony and Ben and our new stringers in Jakarta. Still, it felt, or so we hoped, like we had the right people to help. And also a hell of a lot of work to do. While we were on the phone with the team, I told them where I thought we were. There's like the influencer reporting and then there's the like talking to cops and government officials. I mean, all stuff I had originally wanted to do, I thought before coronavirus that I would go to Jakarta and hire a fixer and like I could have been doing this part myself but we're clearly not doing that now that I'm stuck at home with my kids <laughs> when you listen to a lot of podcasts they often make investigation and reporting seem so easy and it's really not it takes a ton of time and effort so many useless leads and unreturned calls and even with all these new people helping us hone our search we still kept coming up empty-handed Ben hit a wall with Akshaya and was unable to get anything useful out of record searches about fraud cases in Jakarta. One of the stringers I found in Jakarta was making calls to her police and tourism ministry sources, but they were either very slow in getting back to her or didn't know anything about the scam, let alone who was behind it. Then I heard back from Tony. His guys had made some progress. They'd gone to the driver's house or what we thought was his house. It's the address that was on his license anyway. So I think it's been sort of worked out that he's been continuing doing scammy stuff. And then uh, there's been quite a few shady people arriving at his house. Was he at his house? No, no, they found out that he moved about 18 months ago because the neighbors were convinced he was still uh, conducting some shady shit from his face. This was something. You've heard us puzzled before over the driver's role. Some victims, like Heather, said he was too nice and innocent-seeming to be part of the conspiracy. But it always seemed to us, and to other victims, like he has to be in on it. This visit confirmed that. The neighbors had disliked the guy and told Tony's friend that he was definitely up to no good. They seemed happy that he was now gone. But unfortunately, they had no idea where he'd moved to. Tony's guys asked if we had any more leads, specific things to chase down. And honestly, we didn't know what to tell them. Go find a possibly gender-fluid Indonesian man of Indian descent who is on Instagram and can impersonate women very well. So, onward. After the break, our luck begins to turn. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies. The podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios. Wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Chameleon from Campside Media. 
You know how frustrating it is to look at one of those optical illusion posters, the kind with the picture hidden inside a bunch of dots or patterns? You just can't see it? That's how I was starting to feel. Like, this was a mystery we should be able to solve. The clues, I was sure, were there. We just couldn't see them clearly yet. I took out our ever-growing list of victims and began to stare at it again, looking for, I don't know, some kind of sign. If nothing else, there were still a lot of people out there, people who'd gone to Jakarta, who we could talk to. Vanessa thought I was nuts. We'd talked to so many victims already, and while we obviously felt bad for them and we wanted to help them if we could, their stories had kind of started to sound all the same. But also, we were at a bit of a standstill. The reason to go back to the list was because there was nothing else to do. So we roped in somebody else, Abakar Adan, our associate producer. We asked him to take out that giant list of victims that we had in Excel and tackle it again. So while the rest of us were heading out of town right before the 4th of July weekend with our families, Abakar holed up alone in his apartment in Jackson Heights. An apartment so close to the subway, he had to close all the windows in sweltering heat to keep the sound of his tape recorder clean as he reached out to more victims, making calls, ticking off one dead end after another. It was thankless work. Most victims were as over-telling their stories as Vanessa was hearing them. Those who would talk had nothing useful to pass along, just more emails with fake addresses that led nowhere. Abakar was ready to call it a day, but he had one more name on his to-do list. Gregory Mandurano, a 39-year-old aspiring screenwriter living in Long Island. Greg had already told a version of his story to a film crew, so we didn't imagine he'd have anything particularly interesting left to share with us. In fact, Abakar's expectations were so low, he didn't even bother recording the call. Then, they ended up talking for nearly an hour. As soon as he hung up, Abakar called me. But I was off playing cornhole in the backyard with my kids. He left a voicemail. Hello, you've reached the phone of Josh team. Please leave me a message and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Thanks. Hey Josh, I just got off the phone with Greg, and I mean, he has like a ridiculous amount of new information. Um, anyway, I'm gonna shoot you an email, but give me a call as soon as you get a chance. As it turned out, Greg's story was just bananas, and it changed the entire trajectory of our work. Greg was the first screenwriter we'd heard about, but more importantly, it sounded like he was possibly one of the first victims to go to Jakarta. So I got on a three-way call with Greg and Vanessa right away. Hey, Greg, it's Josh. Hi. At the time, Greg lived in Northport on Long Island in his family home. That's where he was calling us from. And he had a big surprise right off the bat. Uh, I took six trips in total. That fact knocked us over. The Polish makeup artist Anna, way back at the beginning of the show, she went to Jakarta twice, and we couldn't believe that. But Greg, he flew across the world on his own dime six times. Can you say how much money you're out? Between travel expenses, incidentals, airfare, and then legal expenses in the neighborhood of eighty dollars to $100,000. So Greg made six trips and lost eighty dollars to $100,000. Just staggering numbers. But what's surprising is that he didn't seem as ripped up about this emotionally as other people we'd talked to, including some who went one time and lost a lot less money. But Greg had had more time to process it, and he was trying to stay hopeful about his career. He, like so many aspiring screenwriters, hasn't had anything produced in the 15 years he's been at it. What did you grow up liking? What 
do you like to write? Like if you had to describe sort of your style and, and where you like to operate genre-wise. Generally, each project that I do is a completely different approach to storytelling. But my passion lies in fantasy and in sci-fi. And what happened to Greg when he got to Jakarta, that almost seemed like a fantasy too. He and his former writing partner had been summoned there to meet with some reps from a Chinese production company that wanted to give him that big break to produce one of his spec scripts. In person, at some fancy high-rise in Jakarta, Greg presented his thriller called Shadows Below. The pitch for Shadows Below was after American terrorists nuke China's naval command, a submarine commanded by the U.S. president's daughter and her team of Navy SEALs are all that stand between a rogue Chinese submarine and nuclear Armageddon. Oh, wow. This was a whole new side of the scam. He had taken in-person meetings with a producer, a man. He was young and smart, sort of stylish. His name was Anand Sippy. All the meetings except for one took place in an assortment of uh, rent-for-hire business buildings. We would be taken there. It was like an hour away from Jakarta. There was uh, a media cart in the corner, you know, and when he pressed the remote control, the TV went on. It was a universal remote control, and the power button turned on the TV instead of the projector. And on the TV was an image of us in the room, a live recorded image from some camera that was in the corner that we didn't see. This wasn't like a camera on some stand that just happened to be on. It was clearly a recording of the scene taken by some hidden camera. And Greg may have just forgotten it, if not for Anand's reaction. He was flustered. He tried to turn it off with the controller, and it didn't work. So he went over to the media cart and shut it off, and then didn't mention it. It was definitely weird, but Greg brushed it off. This relationship was too important to worry about the quirks of their security system. Anand flattered Greg, and also impressed him as a producer. He gave good notes and asked the right questions. It's not even a question of whether or not I believe he was a good producer. The bottom line is he was a good producer. Greg nailed the pitch, he thought. But at the end, Anand gave him some bad news. There is absolutely no way this project would get past the censorship board, which of course was absurd because we had traveled all the way around the world to the literal other half of the world in order to have this meeting, only to find out in the middle of the meeting that it would never get past the board. So I, I pivoted and I pitched to them, if the problem is politics in the real world, what if the same script just didn't take place in the real world? And then I pitched an entire fantasy alternative. Like right there in front of this producer who just shot down his idea, Greg pivoted and pitched a whole new movie. I changed the title to Shadows Beyond. My logline for that project is when an alien princess left orphaned on Earth discovers the truth about who she is, she has to learn to use her magic powers to save her world from a war caused by her return. It's completely and utterly different. It's like a straight fantasy film more akin to Star Wars meets Pirates of the Caribbean than a naval thriller. Anon loved it. He sent Greg back to New York feeling encouraged to work on it more. Over five months and multiple trips, 
Greg developed this project with Anand's help, and with notes and more forceful, occasionally angry guidance from the more senior development executive at the China Film Group. Her name was Jing Weilang. We're talking about daily updates with them. Granted, a lot of it was over the phone, and a lot of it was dealing with his counterpart, Hui Lang, which was, you know, a female voice that, you know, haunts me to this day. Every few weeks, Greg would come back to Jakarta from America for another meeting. So he, he gave good notes. Oh, sure. It was the whole nine yards in terms of development, and not just him, but also uh, Hui Lang. Hui Lang Jing, her nickname was Honey. Both Anon and Jing Hui Lang seemed invested in Greg. He wanted to make them happy, so much that he overlooked a couple other weird things. Whenever phones were involved around him, he seemed on edge. Like, for example, in one meeting, I took my phone out in the meeting, and he was like a deer caught in headlights. And I took the phone out with the intention of shutting it off so that I wouldn't be disturbed. But, you know, in retrospect, there was definitely that concern with him. Finally, after all those trips and meetings, the scammer pulled the plug. Having been lured six times and out six figures, Greg, like every other victim, had his hopes dashed. The China Film Group wouldn't be buying his new version of Shadows Below either. But there was one surprise left. We'll get into that after the break. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. You're listening to Chameleon from Campside Media. Greg sounds pretty well-adjusted now. Almost fond of these memories, oddly enough. But it took him some time to accept the reality of what had happened. He was so close to achieving the thing he wanted. And for a while after the scam, he was dealing with that aftermath, especially the breakup with his writing partner that resulted from it. So he didn't spend a lot of time thinking about the meetings and these fake producers, or really any of that stuff. But maybe you're wondering who Anand really was. Maybe you see this charming faux producer as our scammer's right-hand man, or another stooge, an accomplice. But maybe you guessed. The guy sitting face-to-face with Greg, who was calling himself a non-sippy, was that the con queen? If you didn't guess that, don't feel bad. Greg didn't either. At what point did you realize that that was the actual con artist, or you just knew it was obvious to you? I didn't realize that, all right, so let's, let's pull it back for a second, right? So yeah, a non-sippy wasn't some hired stooge playing the role of producer. That was the scammer, in person, six times. But of course, Anand Sibi isn't his real name. So as far as we know, you're the last person to meet with him. That's what you're saying, right? You you believe you're the last person? I was the last person to meet with him, and I'm also the person who met with him the most. 
Everybody else only met with him once. Greg is sure now that for whatever reason, the con queen got spooked shortly after this. He stopped meeting with victims. And as we now know, he ultimately fled the country, almost certainly for the UK. So we were dying to know this person that we've been obsessing about for over a year. What's he like? He had a very West Coast vibe. His hair was dyed blue. It was blonde with like blue streaks. We're talking about someone who was in his early 30s with a pretty average Indian-Indonesian look and thinning hair. Good dresser or suits, jeans? No, he wore khakis, dress shoes, button-down shirt. No tie. Yeah, you said spoke very good English. So like someone who was highly educated? Yeah, he was always smiling. In the meetings with him, he, you know, I described him as flamboyant, but one way to say it was he was evocative in emoting, right? Everything was pronounced. For example, when we were talking, if he had to sigh, he wouldn't just sigh, he would give a pronounced sigh. He would lean forward and rub his head, you know? In terms of who he reminded me of a little, honestly, the only person that I would venture to connect the two would be the person who I think would be perfect to play him, and that would be Dev Patel. Dev Patel, you know, he was in Slumdog Millionaire. Anand Sippy also told Greg he was Indian. He told me that he grew up a poor street sweeper in India, right? And that his grandfather was a famous Indian director. But his family was estranged from his grandfather and he had to make it on his own. And his life was a struggle of him, you know, pulling himself up by the bootstraps and getting out of the streets to eventually become where he was, allegedly, at, at that time, which was a vice president in film development for the China Film Group Corporation, which, of course, he wasn't. Vanessa was curious if Anand had tried to have phone sex with Greg, like he'd done with some other male victims. Did he do that with you? Oh, no. Everything was very, very professional. Until the end, we were under the assumption that we were dealing with a, a major corporation. And they had um, government papers, government seals. I mean, we had lawyers going over everything and telling us that it was all legit. I wondered, when he realized that this producer who charmed him was the con artist, did the clouds part for him at all? Did Greg look back and see some giant flashing missed signals? In retrospect, the smile that he gave me when I pitched him a fantasy version of the same project that could get past the censorship board was, like, downright malevolent. We didn't want to just rely on Greg's word for who Anon Sippy was. And it turned out we didn't need to either. Greg had learned that Anon was the con queen because about a year after he was scammed, another guy fell into the trap. This guy, a mixed martial artist who dabbled in acting, didn't take it as well as Greg. He wanted revenge, and he hired a private investigator to go to Jakarta and dig around to find the perpetrators. That PI found a travel agency that had been used to book victims' trips, and that agency had a passport on file with an on Sippy's face on it, but a different name. This one was Gobind Lal Tahil, which, it turns out, is also a fake name. 
Greg told Abakar, our producer, that he had a copy of that passport and a few other photos the PI had tracked down using a reverse image search. Those photos are long since wiped from the internet now, in 2020. But in 2016, our scammer wasn't exactly hiding out. The photos went to Abakar, who forwarded them to me. I immediately called Vanessa. She was, at this point, driving around America with her family. She'd gotten bored and quarantined at home. I forwarded her the four pictures of Anand Sippy or Gobind Tahil or whoever he is, and she called me back, but I was away from my phone. Okay, so I'm so excited about this thing with Greg. These pictures are almost identical to how I would thought this guy was going to look. Like, 30s, you know, got his hair dyed blonde, almost like a little, like, chicken, chicken fluff on the top. And just this, like, incredibly weird grin that is almost like a mask, right? Like, don't worry, I'm just a sweetheart. You have nothing to worry about from me. Anyway, we're going to go back to getting eaten by mosquitoes. Talk to you soon. Vanessa and I were thrilled about this. It was the biggest of breaks. We had pictures of the con queen and some aliases, an actual paper trail. But we also knew the FBI wasn't going to be as thrilled as we were. As someone who can personally attest to meeting the scammer in person, Greg is surely a key witness in whatever case the FBI is building. And I got the sense that they'd heard we'd talk to him. This came up obliquely when I talked to Devine Butler, that agent who handles press in the FBI's San Diego field office. You heard part of that conversation last week in Chapter 7. I guess the question that we have is, I know that you guys have been working on this for a while, and you've talked to a lot of people, and you have a pretty big series. I guess the question is, do you feel like you have identified the perpetrator or perpetrators, and do you plan on putting any of that information out or no i mean the series is a you know it's sort of a chronological narrative i have some ideas but that's a decision that hasn't been made yet i guess it's the fairest answer i can give you but i don't have certainty okay. and i don't have enough certainty at the moment to even do it if we wanted to you know if i'm 100 percent certain that we've identified them obviously we're going to think carefully about when and if if we make that public you know and i think we would let you guys know um that would be great Fuck the what's next, go and cash your bad checks. Next week on Chameleon, the dominoes keep falling, and we work frantically to assemble a puzzle that, we hope, will reveal the name behind the face on that passport. So this is where the plot actually really thickens, involving uh, soap opera actress Miss Teen Indonesia 2011 and Enrique Iglesias. <laughs> Chameleon is a production of Campside Media. It's developed, created, and written by Vanessa Gregoriadis and me, Josh Dean. The executive producer is Mark McAdam. Our associate producer is Abakara Don. Fact-checking by Callie Hitchcock. Editorial support by Doug Slaywin, Natalia Winkleman, Rod Sherwood, and Ashley Ann Craigbaum. Additional reporting in Jakarta by Deviante Farids, Bintang Lestada, and Tony's Guys. Our technical consultant is Ben Decker of Amerika. Our theme song is Bad Checks by Houses. Sound design and additional music by Mark McAdam. Our consulting producers are Andy Horwitz at Atlas Entertainment and Charles Mastro Pietro at Circle of Confusion. 
The executive producers at Campside Media are me, Josh Dean, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Adam Hoff, and Matt Scher. If you enjoyed Chameleon, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps other listeners like you find the show. And make sure to subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any information about the Con Queen scam or were a victim and would like to share your story, please call 203-807-4453. You can also email us at chameleonpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Chameleon.